You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now, on to our guest. Sister Helen Prejean is known around the world for her tireless work against the death penalty. She has been instrumental in sparking national dialogue on capital punishment and in shaping the Catholic Church's vigorous opposition to all executions. Her 1993 book, Dead Man Walking, ignited a national debate on capital punishment and spawned an Academy Award-winning movie, a play, and an opera. Her most recently published book is River of Fire on Becoming an Activist, and she is currently working on her fourth book, Riding the Wild River. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business Podcast, Sister Helen and I discuss how she became a minister to Pat Sonier and Death Row, sparking a fire for justice within her. We talk about how the gospel calls the church to be among the poor and on the margins, and how grace wakes us up and makes us alive once we come home to our call. We talk about fear and outrage, and how the latter draws us into conversion. And we discuss the modern death penalty, the issues of justice and morality that it raises, and how community can provide us with the support we need to stay devoted to the messy, hard work. Before we get into the interview, let me tell you a little story about how I first met Sister Helen Prejean. Unlike many of the other guests that I've had in Messy Jesus Business, who have been friends with me for a good while and I know deeply, and personally, Sister Helen Prejean is someone who's influenced my life and inspired me, but is not someone that I know closely, who probably doesn't know me or remember me, even though I met her a long time ago before I became a Catholic sister, before I became a Franciscan sister of perpetual adoration. So when I was 18 years old and a first year student at Warburg College in Waverly, Iowa, where I started studying before I transferred to Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, I was starting to think about being a Catholic sister, but I actually hadn't met any nuns or sisters yet. My only exposure to religious life prior to this was probably knowing about Sister Helen Prejean through Dead Man Walking, the movie Sister Act, and the movie Sound of Music. Movies. (laughs) I can't even say it was books because I don't think I had read Dead Man Walking. And then Sister Helen Prejean came to campus to Warper College, and she spoke about dead man walking and the death penalty. The content of her talk was great, I'm sure. As you'll hear in this interview, she's a wonderful speaker. She's so knowledgeable. She's an expert. She knows her stuff. I'm sure I learned a lot that day. But what I really remember is how excited I was to meet a real Catholic nun, a real Catholic sister. After Sister Helen's talk, 
I couldn't afford to buy a book for her to sign, but I waited in line, the book signing line, you know, in order to tell her how excited I was to meet her and to admit out loud to a real Catholic sister for the first time that I thought I wanted to be one too. So isn't it amazing that 22 years later in a Zoom room, I got to tell her that that story and have this great conversation with her. I learned so much from this interview and I hope you do too. Enjoy. Hello, Sister Helen Frejean. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. Glad to be a part of this. You entered religious life in the 50s, 1957, and went through many things until you became an author and a death penalty activist. So I'm wondering, how has your understanding of vocation and call and who you are, who you are in God, shifted over the years? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I became a nun in the 50s, and it was, I I wanted a prayer life, I wanted a deep prayer life. We had great nuns that taught us Julian High School, and I wanted to be a teacher. So Sisters of St. Joseph, St. Joseph Academy, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, age 18, become a nun. And I've been riding that wave ever since. It's Mm -hmm. been a, a bunch of transformative currents that have happened within it, because vocation is not just a monolithic thing. Their currents and eddies, and you make changes. So, first step, of course, was to become a sister. And before Vatican II, it meant when you entered religious life, you didn't ever have to make another decision. Your whole thing was to be an obedient sister, whatever your superior told you to do, whatever the holy rule said. And it tied into the passivity that was in women. Women, men were to be the aggressors, men were to be the decision makers, you know the map changers, and women were to be obedient and passive and nice and kind and sweet. And that was a womanly thing. So, And then spiritually that fit in too, because obedience in the church was that way. Mm. And so the priest in the pulpit said what God wanted people to do, people obey. Then Vatican II happens. Now this is a huge tsunami. I mean, this is a huge, it's as big a reform council that happened as the reformation happened with martin luther because it was the modern age it was like are you a self do you simply do what you're told existentialism was in the philosophy it was just like exist array you know you know your life's not a given you know you make your life happen you respond to things that happen to you And so our sisters took Vatican II very seriously. We revamped our rule away from blind obedience to trusting the spirit moving within sisters, always in the context of community to make decisions, but trusting selfhood and the spirit in itself. And that's going to be the story of how I eventually got to death row because my community trusted me Mm -hmm. and I made my way. So River of Fire deals with a big awakening. And this is really how you get involved with the, um, the mess of Jesus stuff. I call him <laughs> sneaky Jesus. The sneaky and Jesus, he, right. Sneaky, <laughs> messy, sneaky, messy. They go together. They go yeah. together. Okay. So you see these little statues of Jesus, meek and mild and stuff like that. And you get involved in the Jesus current in your life and you're going to have some adventures. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was, as, as I say in River of Fire, first I thought, Following the gospel of Jesus meant always to be charitable, 
to everybody around you. It meant to pray, you know, and to to love everybody. Okay. But I didn't know, I didn't understand about justice. Because justice means you don't, it's not simply a matter of being nice to those around you in your little bubble, your little lagoon. But it was to take on the big issues of the world where people are suffering and dying and the systemic things that hold that in place. To engage in social justice means you're going to, first of all, take on the sufferings of people who are voiceless and made to suffer, and you're going to undertake systemic change. So what happened? Waking up to justice, the first thing I did was move out of the suburbs. Uh, where I had been and move into the St. Thomas housing projects and live among African-American people struggling against racism, poverty, police brutality, you name it. Mm -hmm. And that awakened my heart. And in fact, a fire began to burn in my heart because you can't experience the suffering of people, these mothers on welfare, these kids subjected to drugs and violence and they couldn't move out of the projects because they couldn't afford rent in another place and I'm working at this place called Hope House and one day when I come out of the adult learning center right there on St. Andrew Street in New Orleans I get an invitation and here comes Sneaky Jesus I don't know <laughs> it's Messy Jesus and it was so simple yeah it's guy from the Louisiana Coalition of Jails and Prisons had an invitation, said, hey, Sister Helen, uh, you want to be a pen pal, somebody on death row? Yeah. I said, yeah, sure, I could write letters, you know. Yeah, great. I was an English major, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't know, we hadn't had an execution in Louisiana in 20 years. This mm. is 1982 when it happened. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court had put the death penalty back in 1976, had noticed. I'm not following anything that has to do with justice, criminal courts, anything. Mm. Sure, I'll write a letter. Gives me the name of this person, Patrick Sonier. Mm. I, I remember, Julia, when I addressed that first letter, I'd never had an address like that, death row. I wow. What does that mean to live on waiting to die street? You know? Yeah, right. Uh, waiting to be killed street. Right. And I wrote the letter and he wrote back and everything unfurled from there because from the letters, he had no one to visit him. And when you get involved in these things with these justice issues like that, and these people, you start reading the gospels in a new way. So how many times had I read the words I was in prison and you came to me. Always figure that applied to other people. <laughs> or, or even, you know, there's a lot of ways of being in prison, like psychologically, if you're shy and you go in this big room full of people, like yeah. you kind of, you know, and, but prison, it's prison. And here he is and he has no visitors and I write and I tell him, Pat, I'll come see you sometime. Mm. I begin to visit him. And then that led me right into that execution chamber. And that's the prelude in River Fire, because that's the fire of the book. And I wrote, they killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act. No religious leaders protested the killing that night. But I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire 
that burns in me still. And this is where messy Jesus gets you. Because when you awaken to something in society, a lot of other people are not awake to it. But you see that human being rendered defenseless and in a premeditated way taken out in this protocol of death and killed. And you see it. And your soul catches fire, which is, this is what the prophets did. Then you know that your mission is that then if you've been the witness, you got to tell the story. And so I came out of that execution chamber that night. And to use the image of the wave, my little boat caught a wave. And I've been doing it ever since because I have to. I've accompanied six people to execution. And they've died in being tortured. They've died, you know, being just treated like disposable human waste. And nobody has stopped it. And people in the church weren't standing up. Bishops weren't standing up. In fact, we had an archbishop in New Orleans at the time. He believed in the death penalty. And we couldn't get any of the bishops. Uh, we couldn't get any priests. But the prophetic role in the church is that God's spirit's been given to every one of us. And when we come into one of the deep messages of the gospel, which is we should not kill each other, and it's legalized vengeance, you kill, we do to you what you kill, you die. And so I began and been riding the wave ever since. Wow. Yeah. I'm a spiritual director and a vocation minister. And oftentimes I'm encouraging people not to fret, but to just like let life unfold and let it be natural, not try to force things and, and notice when you feel more alive. And sometimes people will, will name that they have a moment of arrival, like, oh, I think I, I, this is where I'm meant to be. I can see how everything got me here. Did you have that sense too? In, in you know, really the late eighties, the nineties, when, as, as you blossomed as an author and activist? Yeah, well, first, the first where I belong here was at last I was among poor and struggling people in the St. Thomas housing projects and getting out of the suburbs. Mm. We're with people just like us, especially people of white privilege like us. Yeah. Tend to have the mentality of each other. Right. It is like Pope Francis is big on this. Mm -hmm. that the church is meant to be a field hospital, which means you got to be on the margins. Who are we ever in the presence of who are unlike us on the margins and suffering? People in prison, you know, immigrants trying to come into the, the country, transgender people trying to just get people to recognize their humanness. Who are we with? Who do we keep company with? And then who do we serve? So when I got in, finally into St. Thomas, because I had resisted the social justice thing, I said, they're trying to make us into social revolutionaries and we nuns, we're not social workers, you know, our job is to pray for people, our job. It was like I was home, I'd come home and I was so glad, Julia, to be awake. See, grace wakes us up and until we wake up. So I became more alive then and it has happened ever since. Mm, mm. So then what what do you do? See, you have to take initiative. You really got to put something out there. So what do I do now? And we're called to create, see, where nothing exists yet. We put it out there. Mm -hmm. And and it was, I came out that execution chamber that night in the dark. First thing I did was throw up. I had never watched a human being be killed in front of my eyes. And completely overwhelmed. 
But the words of Jesus were clear. Even there that night, it was like Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I knew that most people, I think, support in the death penalty that night that Pat was killed was close to 90% in Louisiana. We have deep South state where slavery, any state coming out of slavery and the harsh penal system to keep blacks under control. Uh, but I also knew their hearts were good. And I knew they had made been made to be afraid that there are some people so violent that we have to kill them to have society be safe. I also knew they were very removed from what goes on in execution chambers. There have been two court cases to try to make executions public, and they've both been defeated. But when you have people like me brought in, you're the witness. So your job is to take them there. And so that's eventually, there were other steps too about then writing the book of dead man walking. There's a saying from Latin America, what the eye doesn't see, the heart can't feel. When people are removed from what goes on in the execution chambers, they go, yeah, look, terrible crime. And, and this is the journey of conversion that we all have to make about the death penalty. You gotta stand there in horror and moral outrage when innocent people are killed. I had a good editor help me shape the story of Demiwan, of bringing people right into the murder, mm. killing the two innocent teenage kids shot in the back of the head, the girl raped, left in a sugarcane field. Ring got to go into the horror and feel the outrage, because outrage over the death of innocent people is immoral. It's ethical to feel outrage over and then the job then as the, as the writer is to take them then step by step into that execution chamber and to watch it step by step this human life is taken and to be told this is what justice means. This is what we must do. So to bring them close. And I found out a book's a powerful thing. Yeah. Because when you read, as you know, right? Mm -hmm. You're using your imagination and you're there. You can experience the emotions, you're there. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know about the power of a book to change hearts and minds, but Devin Walker's done good, good work, really yeah. good work. And so the, I, then I wrote the book and then God's providence moved right and left with the book because Julia, what chance does a book by a Catholic nun, first time, first book ever. Right chance does it have on something as controversial as the death penalty published in 1993 when 80% of the American public was all for the death penalty. Tell me, what chance is that book going to have? In fact, if you go on my Twitter and, and Facebook, uh, right. I just put this out because that editor that helped me shape Dead Man Walking and edit out there was Jason Epstein and he just died. Oh. And so I have a whole series remembering Jason and what he did. And I just told the story today. I just sent this in, we posted it today. Mm -hmm. How he got the book and then he got it to reviewers like the New York Times book review, the, got it into book reviews because what you first have to do, and he helped me write a good book. 
And so we had trust, he had trust in the book, got it to good reviewers, began to review it, good reviews started coming out. Then he got me on all these talk shows on the Today Show, on Fresh Air, on NPR, on Larry King Live, when Larry King was live. You <laughs> almost never could say Larry King's name without saying Larry King Live. Anyway, on all those shows to talk about the book. That must have been a wild experience. It was, but it was very grounded. I was very, very clear. My job, there had been such suffering. And my job was to tell this story and stay mm -hmm. true to it and be faithful to it. Mm -hmm. And then, so the hardback came out in 93. The paperback came out in 94. Susan Sarandon reads the paperback mm -hmm. and persuades Tim Robbins to do a film. By the end of 95, we had a first-class film. Dead Man Walking came out, hit the theaters in New York and Los Angeles first. Four nominations, and Susan gets an Oscar for portraying me with 1.3 billion people in the world watching the blooming Oscars that night. And the book went out. That's God. That's right. That's the Holy Spirit taking control, isn't it? And messy. Let's talk about messy Jesus. Because look at this. You talk about a mess. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, you're going to trust a nun who hadn't had much experience in anything. You right, we don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> do you? Well, while Tim Robbins was writing the film, he was saying, the nun is in over her head. The nun is in over her head. <laughs> See that? And that's built into the story. Yeah. You know what I found out, Julia? That one of the reasons people read a book is here's a book on the death penalty, and I'm not coming off as some expert. That's going to mm -hmm. tell you everything. And people can resist that. When they fall something, don't you tell me about the death penalty. I know what I, but you open up a book and you say, wait, this nun doesn't know what she's doing. Let's, let's just see what happens. Part and see what happens to me. So good old messy Jesus. There we are. There we are. Relatable. Yeah. So I want to go back to a word you mentioned a bit earlier, justice. From your view, what is justice? And when you look at biblical justice, right? What is justice, okay? And and it's it's in the Old Testament. So when you have Martin Luther King standing up and beginning to lead black people in the search for equality and justice, he quotes the prophet Amos when he says, "Let justice roll down like a mighty stream." What's the context of the justice he's talking about is the justice I'm talking about. And it is. Why are there poor people? Why in the richest country in the world, there are poor people and rich people keep getting rich. You get into economics. Mm -hmm. What does justice mean to have a fair and just taxation system? What does that mean? What does justice mean in that racism that has infiltrated every system that we have? We saw it in the killing of George Floyd, how it's in law enforcement. We, and now more and more is coming out of how it's been in real estate. For years and years and years, Black people were blocked from being able to move in certain neighborhoods. They don't have the inherited wealth to pass on. We also see that Black people's property was taken from them, those that were farmers and had a little plot of land. Justice means that everybody's got a fair 
shake and they have equal access to liberties and to freedom and to and to a way to have a livelihood and a life that has dignity to it. That's what justice means. And see, those of us privileged, and we got to recognize this, Julia. Yeah. We're privileged, and nuns, nuns are very privileged. We are. So when you're living in privilege, and you always have what you need, you got health care, got housing, got a community support, education, all the education you can stand, and education is who tell, tells us who we are. I mean, when, and when we're educated, we discover our gifts, you know. Uh, so when we're operating out of privilege, the pilgrimage into the suffering of others on the margins is a big one. When God's grace messages is really got to stir the waters in that for that to happen with us. Because, and besides that, as nuns, we're held up in respect you know by most people and so we go mm, we're pretty good people you know we have people coming to us saying hey sister pray for this because your prayers are better than mine i know right <laughs> and right. you're like hey now <laughs> I don't, what makes you think i'm any closer to god than you <laughs> and black people are walking in department stores and have the house detective following them simply because they're black Right. Every signal you get because you got black skin. You know, that you're suspicious. And it's, I mean, it's really coming out with the way the police are killing black young men. I mean, it really is coming out. Black people are always under suspicion. And uh, and look at us. So when you we're when you occupy a place of privilege, it's dangerous in a way because we always get respect. So that spiritual journey inside the skin and soul of someone who's suffering, you know, from being uh, biased against, prejudiced against, we got to do, we need messy Jesus in there yeah. to get the world around, we do. And we got to take initiative to get out of a comfortable lagoon and to go into the places where messy Jesus is waiting. Amen, amen. So much has happened since Dead Man Walking was published. And now it's in the catechism that the death penalty is wrong. It goes against the commandment, do not kill. It's right. more nuanced than it goes against the commandment, do not kill. Because for a long time, the tradition teaching of the church was, when you came to the commandment, thou shalt not kill, there was an exception made that states could take life to protect society from violent people. But you got to know in the history that that was before prisons. So starting way back in the fifth century, you had St. Augustine. He was the first one to really depart explicitly from the gospel of Jesus, who had said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to the violent may be coerced with the sword. But what was the historical situation happening in the fifth century? The Huns and Visigoths and the those they call the bearded ones, barbarians, were breaking down the, there was chaos in society. And in that context, then, St. Augustine said, the violent may be coerced by the sword. And that's the first time we have that the state was given the authority to kill violent offenders. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get to Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, you have Thomas Aquinas, 
But notice in the church teaching, it was always about defending society. Thomas Aquinas says it's like having a gangrenous arm that you cut off from the body for the health of the whole body. Or it's like a rabid dog that you put down, but for the protection of the whole body. It was never this thing as the modern death penalty, which was instituted in the United States in 1976 by the Supreme Court. There are some crimes by their very nature that are so heinous, what we call the worst of the worst, that the very fact that they were committed, they deserve the death penalty. Only death can bring justice. Hmm. That's different thinking. And that's really legalized vengeance. Mm -hmm. This act, you did this, so we do this to you. Hmm. And of course, the, the fallacy in it, you know, and the fault lines in it from the beginning. Now, who are going to be the agents that are going to make these decisions of who's the worst of the worst by the nature of their crime or their character? And so we have made all kinds of mistakes in that. So what happened in the church? So what happens, as Vatican II said, Holy Spirit is in all the people, all the people. The real definition of church is it's the people. Spirit moves in the people. The people, we're the ones on the ground. We're the ones going in the prisons. We're the ones. And then spirit moves, Holy Spirit moves for us, okay? So you had a lot of bubbles coming up from the pot of reflection, consciousness, conscience, people going in, people like me going into the death chamber, coming out saying, this is what's happening. Mm. that bubbled up in the church mm. and from the people and now for example you have more deacons now in the church going into prisons as part of their ministry and the minute you have that interaction with people and people on the margins and people suffering the spirit works and that's really messy jesus at work in that and consciousness changes and conscience changes and that's what happened with the church teaching on the death penalty. So more and more people were experiencing executions and getting the word. And, and globally, things were happening, too. Mm -hmm. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was taking hold in country after country. When a society has a prison and you can incapacitate violent people and you can keep society safe, why do you have to kill them? So we're at a point now of the 194 nations in the world, the vast majority, three-fourths of them, do not have the death penalty anymore. It's holding on in the United States for a number of reasons, but it's on its way out because the people are getting it. Part of the factor is you spend millions and millions of your resources to kill one person, and you have all these what they call cold cases, unsolved homicides. Well, what about those victims? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things. Catholic Church, dialogue, experience meets experience. And one part of that dialogue, which I talk about in Death of Innocence, was I was the spiritual advisor of a man in Virginia, Joseph Odell, and he was innocent. He was trying to get word out, and I got involved with the case, got involved with him, and the word reached Pope John Paul. And I wrote a letter which was delivered to Pope John Paul II. And and, you know, when you have a conversation with a Pope, Julia, it's no different from talking to you. Oh, 
No, it's because you talk about your experience. You stay true to what you know. Yeah. You know, you spoke language. I got to use half them. No, I never would have imagined. No, no, you wouldn't. No, you never do that. Just like be yourself everywhere we go, right? But to take them into the experiencing. I also knew that Pope John Paul II had never been in an execution chamber. All right. And he, in his encyclical, The Gospel of Life, had taken the death penalty and pushed it to the very edge, saying it should be rare. It should be almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. But my heart dropped when I read this. But in cases of absolute necessity, the state can execute. And I went, oh, as long as you have that loophole, you're going to have real human beings interpreting that. And sure enough, the DA of New Orleans, Harry Connick Sr., wanted as many death penalties as he could get. And he held that up. And he said, every death penalty we get is an absolute necessity. And I'm quoting the Pope here. Mm. So I knew I wanted to bring him deeply in that what we needed in the church was unqualified opposition to the death penalty with no loopholes. And so mm-hmm. when I wrote this in the letter, I said, look, I meet a lot of Catholics who say they're pro-life. I'm pro-life too. We're pro-life across the board. But as I talk to them, what they really mean is they're pro-innocent life. But they draw a line when it comes to a guilty person. They deserve what they get. And so they support the death penalty. Can you, can you help our church to understand that pro-life really means that every human being has inviolable dignity that must not be taken from them? And I, then I brought him with me. And I said, when I'm walking with a man to execution and I'm right behind him, we're getting ready to walk to the electric chair. He's shackled hand and foot, surrounded by six guards. I have my hand on his shoulder. I have Isaiah 43 that I'm going to read into his ear as he walks. I've called you by your name, your mind, some dignity as he's making that walk. And he kind of turned to me before we start. And he says, Sister Helen, Please pray God holds up my legs. And I said, Your Holiness, where is the dignity in taking a human being, rendering him completely defenseless, and killing him? We have prisons. And the Pope had been calling for a moratorium. He had been. Mm -hmm. What we needed was to change that catechism because every time a statement came out, they always upheld the right of the state to take life. Mm, yeah. In the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states in Article 3, every person, simply by being a person, has an inviolable right to life, life, inalienable, inalienable right, which means this right can't be pried from you for bad behavior for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So governments don't have the power to give life or to take life. They cannot do that. And that, that was a big thing. So notice, you notice the language. So Pope John Paul II laid the way. To me, I thought of it like a volleyball. Uh, what Pope John Paul did was he put, he poised the volleyball right above the net and Pope Francis going to come along and knock it over. Okay, A spike, yeah. <laughs> right. but what Pope John Paul did in 1999, Okay, my letter went to him in 97. All the dialogue was going on around that time. And when he was in St. Louis for the first time, 
he he put the death penalty in with other pro-life issues. Mm. No to abortion, no to euthanasia, no to physician-assisted suicide, and no to the death penalty, which is cruel and unnecessary. And he added, here was the biggie, even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And then Pope Francis could build on that. Mm. And, and also Pope Benedict called for abolition of the death penalty so he could build on what other popes had done. Mm. All from the people of God coming up. It's the people of God's consciousness and awareness. And the words he changed in the catechism were crucial because it is that no matter how grave or heinous the crime, that we cannot entrust over to government the right to take life. That's a paraphrase of it, but that's what it means. It's that without exception, that was the big. So it's a lot more, a little more nuanced than the commandment that shall not kill. Right. Thank you. That was so informative and helpful. And I, I just learned a lot from you. Not, not a surprise. You're a great teacher. I, and, and I want to tell you something when you're talking about how the the church and the spirit is like bubbling with the consciousness and how that was going on in the eighties and nineties. And it was builds us up into this transformation in the church. Before I studied theology, before I left my little town in Iowa, where I grew up and I, all I had was CCD at the little parish. Right. And somehow I know the scene. Yeah. You know, the scene. So here, somehow, somehow I remember kind of vividly, I can't say how old I was, but, but we learned Jesus died for our sins. My hand shot right up. Then why would we ever kill someone for their sins? Cause I knew that that happened. And I, <laughs> and of course this volunteer catechist was like, I don't know, Julia, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> but, but, and, and to me, that just feels like an indicator that the spirit was working at me. And somehow I was tapped into this wider network of consciousness that, that was bubbling that wave. Right. And well, it's wonderful. Great. Yeah. You know what, Julia, and that's one of the most, you know, the atonement theory of the death of Jesus yeah. is what has bolstered the death penalty. I mean, there was a terrible statistic in the mid 80s that the more people went to church the more they believed in the death penalty oh. how did they view the crucifixion of jesus okay i'm gonna give you an example this is just two years ago wyoming was one vote short of repealing the death penalty in their state and this woman senator said no she wasn't voting for repeal because if jesus had not been executed by the Romans, we would not be saved from our sins. Oh, gosh. Many, many people interpret the crucifixion as God's way of getting justice. God's divine sense of justice had been offended. Sacrifice had to be made. So the son is sacrificed. God is appeased. And that's how we save from our sins. Start digging into that because that's just a huge thing that people and and I actually am working with the death penalty had people make the argument to me. Mm. Jesus died on, you know, he was executed for our sins. They committed this sin of killing somebody. Mm. They die for their sins and that's how they go to heaven. And that, what's the image of God behind that? A God that's going to demand the death of a son. That's so that's sad. 
It's an ogre. That's a god. Who wants pain for pain? Life for life? What kind of god is that? Yeah, yeah. And what we do is we project into God who we say God is. All of us do that. Mm -hmm. God makes us in his image, we believe. But we are always making God in our own image. Mm -hmm. And through your district attorneys who want the death penalty, they come in. I had one district attorney come into the trial quoting Jesus. As Jesus said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. When he lived by the sword, now he's going to die by the sword. That's justice. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's we believe what we want to believe, don't we? Well, it's who we're with and what experiences in life we have. Mm-hmm. So you're a person of white privilege and you never have to worry. Or you, it's rare that somebody would be, their crime would be violent, all kinds of crime in your neighborhood, people breaking in, drugs everywhere, shootings everywhere, because we live a protected life. Mm-hmm. So we made afraid. So when crime happens, you have a politician run for office who says, we're going to have law and order. Well, we want to be protected. Mm. And so we're defensive about it. And so we say, yeah, we got to use whatever means necessary to keep society safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's that what Pope Francis keeps talking about, Julia, the gospel of encounter. encounter. We have to encounter people who are different from us and suffering and are in danger. We have to step out of our safe zones and go to be with them. And, uh, and they will teach us and we accompany them. And we begin then to really grow. We always grow and God's spirit's always nudging us. Um, and when we, where we need to be in, the, in our spiritual life and our life, we, we experience a peacefulness. But when God's nudging us and stirring the water, it's kind of like a balloon hitting the ceiling. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm called to do more. What is it? It's restlessness. It's what more? And for me, the direction has been, where are there poor people? Where is there suffering? Because we have a lot. We I had to be educated. What did I know about what poor people really suffered? What it meant to be on a pitiful welfare check? What it meant to that you couldn't get a job because you live in the wrong zip code of a neighborhood and they don't even want to give you a job. What does that mean? Mm. What does that feel like? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Messy Jesus Business Podcast is really interested in what it means to be a radical disciple and to live the gospel. You've talked a lot about the messiness of that, but for you, what does radical discipleship mean? And how do you understand your identity as a radical disciple? Okay, well, radical means rod X root, the root of the gospel of Jesus. Here we go with the death penalty. Jesus said, forgive those who hurt you, mm-hmm. love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then you come face to face in your society with the death penalty. Radix, the root of the gospel of Jesus, is never to return evil for evil. And it doesn't matter that you make it legal. It doesn't matter that you have what the Supreme Court said this is okay. Mm -hmm. The radical message of the gospel of Jesus, it can never be permissible to give our government the authority to kill our fellow human beings after they've been rendered defenseless. That's the radical gospel of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
you've lived through a lot. You've, <laughs> and you've definitely been a great, a great witness, like you felt called to be after you witnessed Pat's execution. I'm wondering what suggestions you have for younger generations who desire to live the gospel with authenticity, courage, and joy. Get out of your comfortable place where you are and go join in with those that are, that are doing the gospel and living in truth. Go with those that are in the poor neighborhoods and struggling for racial justice, which means you're going to be educated. You can't do it without a community. You can't just pile up a whole bunch of books, go into a cave, I'm going to get educated. You got to be immersed in a community of the faithful that are doing it. That's what you do. And it means you got to take some steps. And it can start out, it's good to serve food to the, to the homeless, but immersion so you can be in the presence of people. Because mm. as Francis says all the time, that encounter with the person, one of the first things he did after he was Pope was go to the prison. Go to those places where the people are. And it's, it's presence with a community of people. There's no room for lone rangers to go in and say, oh, I'm going to go and do this. Mm-hmm. Because it's a long road. It's a hard road and it has a lot of ups and downs. And without community at our side, we can never make it. I could never make it without community by my side. And my community consists of my own religious sisters, sisters of St. Joseph, who helped grow me up and help me be who I am today. But I'm in a community of lawyers, human rights activists, uh, and people that are in there working. And uh, that keeps me going. Amen. Thank you, Sister Helen. Where can our listeners find your work and buy your books and, 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 you know, also join in the the actions for, to stop the the death penalty? Well, you go on to go to my webpage will bring you into all these things. It's sisterhelen.org. And uh, it brings you on to Facebook and TikTok and everything. Wow. Because we keep public discourse going. See? Yeah. And, uh, like you're doing, like you're doing. <laughs> I don't know how you're doing this, but you're doing it and you're getting the word out, right? Yeah. Also, people can get that and walk and you can get it on Amazon. It's also, I did the audio book of it. And that's the book to start with. Mm-hmm. Those that are looking to see how I, can I develop my life of faith into one of being a person of justice would be River of Fire. And I read that book too. It's on Audible that you can get on Amazon or in independent bookstores and go to my webpage. Sisterhelen.org. Thank you, Sister Helen. Yeah, thank you. It's great talking to you, Julie. you to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas Sister Helen referred to the prophet Amos's teaching about justice in the fifth chapter of Amos, I'm going to read for you some of that scripture. As you listen, I invite you to breathe deeply and pray. Notice how the Holy Spirit is pointing out certain truths. Be grounded in your body as you listen to the word of God. A reading from Amos, chapter 5, 
verses 12 through 15 and 22 through 24. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.